Well, it's good to see you all and uh, try and remember where I'm at. I have had the privilege for the last month of being on a, a trip that just had so many points of blessing to it. I began a month ago, went to the Philippines and I went to Cebu. I've never been to Cebu before, a prominent island in the Philippines. People have been asking me about the particular church in Cebu as long as I've been going to the Philippines. They say, why don't you go there? It's the largest church in the country. They average about 10,000 on Sunday morning. And uh, I didn't know them and they didn't know me. I'd never been invited before. But they asked me to come and um, it was an amazing experience. Their auditorium makes this look tiny. The pastor is 91 and still active. His son is his associate pastor. He's 71 training to take the ministry someday. <laughs> and uh, they were just great guys to spend time with. And I had the privilege of preaching there on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and then doing a two-day session on the dangers of Calvinism, something I have become known for and got invitations all over the place for. And uh, I spoke all day uh, Monday and all day Tuesday. And they have a Bible college with about 300 students that were there in those sessions. And then they invited pastors and had over 800. It was an incredible crowd of people. The most interactive crowd I have ever spoken to. I mean, they were just with you responding to everything. Uh, and it was, it was just an amazing time and an amazing experience. I have uh, had all kinds of opportunity over the last year to speak and address the Calvinism issue. I've often thought about how pleased I think Dr. Scudder Sr. would have been with that. He and I talked about that subject more than once and we both uh, thought the teaching of it was very dangerous and I think he would have got a kick out of uh, somebody from Quentin Road in Spring uh, out addressing those issues. But, but I had a great opportunity with them and at that church and reminded how gracious and kind God is to us, even about the little things. The heat was just incredible. And they don't have an air-conditioned auditorium like this. And, and there were moments I really thought the heat was just going to overwhelm me. And I was literally, during a break, sitting there thinking, man, what I wouldn't give for a cold Pepsi. And Pastor Frank Densey walked up at exactly that moment and handed me a cold Pepsi. And I'm looking stunned. And he, he said, what's wrong? And I told him, so I was just sitting here thinking that. He said, oh, he said, I was just on the phone with Keith Burginal. And I was telling him about the, the meeting and how hot it was. And he said, well, he really likes cold Pepsis. You should get him one. And so he brought me one. <laughs> I was gone to Manila spoke in a couple churches and then I spoke that next Sunday uh, for Sam and Cheyenne Sampson and, and just what a thrill it was to be with them and to spend time with them and see the church there and what they're doing and how things are going. Know them both, of course, from uh, time their time as students here at Dayspring. I knew Cheyenne from before that. She was saved as a 10-year-old bus kid uh, in the church I pastored in Chicago. I got saved as a 10-year-old bus kid. I'm sort of partial to 10-year-old bus kids. They get saved and get faithful in church. And it's just been so exciting to watch what the Lord is doing uh, with her and with them and to see how the Lord is blessed there. And then I went to Landmark Baptist College 
where Keith Bergenal is now the administrator and Keith and Rebecca are doing a tremendous, tremendous job there. I taught there for four days. A brand new class, The Doctrines of Salvation and Harmony. I entitled it The Just Shall Live by Faith. And man, we just had the greatest time with that. And again, I am so proud of Keith and Rebecca and what they're doing. 28 years ago, I was asked to go to the Philippines and help organize a Bible college. At that time, I was a president of Landmark Baptist College in Florida, which is how it got the name. And I went there and I organized it and, and go back every year or twice a year to try and teach in that college and be a part of it. Half for all these years, the exception of the pandemic years. And uh, just it's been a tremendous ministry and a tremendous thing to watch. But it was kind of a Filipino mindset. Their idea was everything has to be done by a pastor. Pastor administrated the college. Pastor was academic dean. A pastor uh, was the dean of students. A pastor did the promotion. A pastor kept the records. And, and, and I tried to talk to them for years on this. I said, pastors are always of necessity going to put pastoring first. So what they're doing at the college comes second. I said, you need a college administrator that is not a pastor, but someone that will see to all the details of the college. And several... Years back, forget how long ago it is now. I remember I made a special trip to the Philippines just to try and talk him into this. I convinced them to offer that situation to Keith Bergenal. And I'm just telling you, he has done an absolutely incredible job there. As a missionary of our church, our church ought to be thrilled with them and what they're doing. And they are thrilled. They are thrilled with what's happening. They've seen the difference that it makes. And um, it is that's just a thrilling thing to watch what the Lord is doing with them there. And then uh, that Wednesday night, I went and preached for one of the graduates of that college who I watched as a college student come in, take the classes. I think he may have started before Keith was the college administrator, but graduated during Keith's time. And now he's out pastoring a church and man, in Cavite and just doing an incredible job. So it was great to be there with him. And then I went to Australia. And in Australia, I, uh, on uh, Sunday, spoke in three different churches and then got to spend Monday and Tuesday again teaching a conference on Calvinism uh, for college students and preachers there. And uh, that was an incredible time. And in the evenings, I was doing a, uh, a conference on a King James Bible uh, for one of the churches there. And, and we had a number of churches come and be involved in that. Had just the greatest time with that. And then I left Australia and I went to New Zealand. And as in New Zealand, again, we had a conference on the Calvinism issue. And then on Saturday and Sunday, I got to speak eight times in one large Filipino church on Baptist heritage. And just all the way through this, had the most incredible time. I'm so grateful for the church's part here in helping with, with all that. And it just an absolutely incredible experience. And I, I keep changing countries and time zones. And to the point, I'm almost not quite sure where I'm at right now. But, but y'all look kind of familiar, even through the jet lag. So I think I know where I'm at. And I, I'm so appreciative for this church. This church's burden for missions and investment. And I just promise you, the cause of Christ benefits all over the place because of the investment that this church makes in Bible college and in missions. Neither of those is easy 
or simple. They're both expensive. They both matter. While I was gone, I was contacted by a preacher I know in Singapore to ask. He sent me a copy, rough draft of a book he's written. And he wanted me to write the foreword for that book. And and the book was about a common uh, Baptist doctrinal statement that was used by many, many churches for a period of time. Uh, It was the doctrinal statement I studied for my ordination back in 1975. And how that particular group of Baptist churches, because they had a doctrinal statement, made the gospel clear and said, we have a responsibility to take the gospel to the whole world. It kept in front of those churches that need and created one of the most incredible missions movements in the history of New Testament Christianity. In fact, the church I was first mentioning that averages 10,000 now, not only does it average 10,000 on a Sunday morning in Cebu, they've started 50 other churches in Cebu. It's just incredible. But they were part of that movement. And and when a missionary first talking about going there, the Calvinist crowd, there's no need. Said the people won't listen. Uh, You know, God hasn't foreordained and predestined them. There's no reason. There's no reason to take church resources and take church money and do all this. And I'm standing here that Sunday morning, looking at an auditorium holding 5,000 people. In that direct auditorium, another 5,000 other places on the property. Uh, the next two days, and I was looking at hundreds of pastors that have come out of the training and foundation of that church. I sure am glad there were people who didn't listen to all that back then. And that book I just wrote the foreword for, guys, where I make the point how a doctrinal statement that recognized the responsibility of the gospel and getting the gospel to the whole world, how it had impacted millions of people. What the uh, folks from that group don't know, he's doing a second book. Because in later years, they would change that doctrinal statement and soften it so as not to seem so extreme to so many. And that emphasis has faded and faded and faded. And he's going to do a second book on what the weak doctrinal statement has meant to churches. Now, I am so glad to be part of a church that understands, that makes the kind of investment that makes a difference in the lives of incredible numbers of people around the world. I do not think we'll have any sense before eternity itself. What a difference the investment of this church has made. And so I just praise the Lord for Dr. Scudder Sr.'s vision, what he wanted to accomplish and do. I praise the Lord that he has a son who continues and cherishes that vision. I've seen over the years many times a pastor with a vision and a ministry is handed over to a son. And the son feels like he has to change it to make it his own and make it something completely different. And and, and he has to fix what was never broken. And uh, it, it just thrills me to be part of this church with its vision, its burden, its determination, and the ministry of father and son going the same direction. Well, real quickly, if you'd follow along with me, just a little bit of lesson from the Queen of Sheba tonight. 
Bible talks as you begin in, in 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 1. And says, and when the queen of Sheba heard of the famous Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. As far as who the queen of Sheba was, we actually know a great deal about this person. She's mentioned in the Bible. She's mentioned in the Quran. She's mentioned in Jewish tradition. She's mentioned in Yemeni tradition. She's mentioned in Ethiopian tradition and in the writings of Josephus. She was the empress of an expanded Ethiopian empire, which included parts of Arabia. We find out in verse 1, she heard about Solomon. And so she came to Judah and Jerusalem to ask Solomon questions. Hard to believe a woman obsessed with asking questions. I know... Uh, is difficult to watch a movie with my wife because she never stops asking questions. Why did that just happen? Why did he just do that? And if you stop to answer it, you're going to miss what happens next and then she's going to ask you a question about what it was you just missed. I've sometimes told her, I've handed her a pad and a pen and say, would you just write all your questions down? I'll answer them after the movie. So a woman with questions. I know that's hard to believe, but it's what happened. She came, she heard about Solomon, so she's got a list of questions and she comes. She gave Solomon great gifts. She came to Jerusalem with a very great train with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. It was the custom, both of that part of the world and the custom of royalty to begin thing with gifts. I preached uh, once in Syria. And uh, hopefully the Lord's going to allow us to go back. We're looking at it next summer. But they have a custom that but before you do anything, before you have a meeting, before you deal with anything, they have to give you a gift. I mean, literally that was so much the case. When I arrived there, they said we cannot start the meeting in the church until after we've given you a gift. What do you want? I don't know. Never started a meeting that way. I didn't know about any of that. And they said, no, we have to give you something. I said, I, I don't know. Do whatever you want to do. They said, we cannot have you preach until after you've received a gift. So I said, just whatever you want to do. They took me to a tailor's and had a suit made for me. And then when I had the suit, I could preach. Well, Queen of Sheba came. And here she was, and she's getting, uh, bringing this incredible, Solomon's already the wealthiest man in the world, but she's bringing him enough wealth to even get his attention so that she can begin the conversation with this gift. And here's the part of the story that's really amazing. Not a woman asking questions. Most of us know that story. It's a man that could answer all of the questions. Look in verse 3. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. This was not a poor woman from the back alleys of town who was stunned by this. This was the empress of an empire 
significant enough to be recorded and remembered in history. And when she got to Solomon and the answers that he had, she's stunned. And then she looked at the blessings that God had poured out on Solomon. And she was stunned. She was stunned at the building. She was stunned at the food that was available. She was stunned at the very way that his servants dressed. And his cupbearers. And and even the way they went up into the house. And, And she was so stunned. There was no more spirit in her. The implication is she quit asking questions. Historic first. And then she says to Solomon. She said to the king, it was a true report that I'd heard in my own land of thine acts and of thy wisdom. How I believed not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. It's not unusual to hear elaborate stories. But she was hearing about Solomon, his wisdom, his wealth, his power. She said, that can't be true. That can't half be true. She said, if 50% of that was true, that'd be an incredible story. But then when she got there and she saw it all, she said, it's far more than anybody told me. I don't know about you, but I, I, I've seen the promotions for a lot of things about how incredible they were and beautiful they were, how elaborate they were, only to get say, well, you know, there was a certain amount of exaggeration in this whole story. In Solomon's case, it was twice what she'd been told. I'm going through all this for a reason, if you'll bear with me. And she speaks to Solomon. Solomon responds with great gifts for her. Happier thy men... Happier these thy servants which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God which delighteth in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Now there is a significance in that declaration. The word God is a word that refers to the creator God and is a word that was used in many languages, many countries, and many religions. But not the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That was a distinctly Jewish word. You didn't go to the other countries and hear them use the word Jehovah. You did not go to the other religions and hear them use the word Jehovah. It was distinctly Jewish. And and whether she understood this or not, It refers, as God refers to a creator God. And the word Lord, small letters in English, Adonai, refers to a ruling God. The word Lord is a unique word to Hebrew. It refers to a savior God. A God not just that creates man and rules over man, but a God that provides himself as a savior for man. No other religion in the world had that term. To this day, 
You talk to people who are involved in Bible translation. Brother Steve Ziner, who uh, comes here and teaches for us at the college every year, uh, is probably the best expert on Bible translation I know. And that's his life and the thrust of his ministry. And he's working with different teams, translating the Bible into different languages. This is one of the challenges they have in every language they translate the Bible into. What are we going to do with the word Jehovah? Because there is not a word in that language for Jehovah. They don't have a problem with the word God. Every language ever discovered has a word for God. The creator God. Even in recent times when they have reaching some of the last tribes in the Amazon River Basin. That are some of the last tribes to be confronted with outside civilization. And dealing with them and communicating with them. And trying to learn their languages and speak to them. They all. Everyone they've ever found has a word for the creator, God. So you want to translate the Bible into their language and you come to the word God, that's not a problem. And you come to the word Lord, small letters, Adonai, that's not a problem. They all have a concept of ruling government. But Jehovah, a God that saves No religion outside of Hebrew has ever had a word for that. So Bible translators have to figure out what they're going to do. How they're going to translate it. And what the English translators, King James Bible, and in English Bibles before the King James, they just took that word and they put it in capital letters. L-O-R-D. So that every time you come to that word in capital letters, it's Jehovah in the Hebrew It is a reference to the Savior God. And the Queen of Sheba is acknowledging that the Jews had a Savior God. That was extreme. Therefore he made thee king to do judgment and justice. She gave the king 120 talents of gold and spices, very great store and precious stones. There came no more such abundance of spices as these which the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir great uh, plenty of almond trees and precious stones. And the king made of the almond trees pillars for the house of the Lord. And the king made of the uh, uh, sorry, and the king made of the almond trees pillars for the house of the Lord and for the king's house harps also and psalteries for singers. There came no such almond trees and were seen to this day. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. She turned and went to her own country and she and her servants. This is a great victorious moment for the cause of the Lord. It is a great victorious moment for Solomon. The empress of an empire has come to Solomon and been so impressed with what she saw. She said it was greater than the stories that she had heard. And she acknowledges the God of the Jews in that course. Some say, did she get saved here? I don't know. I hope she did. But she acknowledges the God of the Jews. And this is an incredible victory for Solomon. And notice a few things. Number one, he did not try to impress her with worldly wisdom. He did not try to say, well, let's find out what they believe in Ethiopia. 
and, and, and let's identify with Ethiopians by agreeing with them and adopting their ideas and their religion and their philosophy. And, and so we'll make her feel right at home by agreeing with her. Can I tell you there is a lesson in that for all of us today? The cry of our culture that has seeped into our churches and become the cry of so many of our churches is that we must agree with an ungodly world for the get to try and get the world to, to celebrate God in some sense and to believe in some, some sense and to be relevant in some sense. We must compromise with the message of the world. What's happening, some of our evangelical churches right now, is utterly beyond belief. It's seeped into the Bible colleges. It's seeped into the moral beliefs and teachings of churches. It's seeped into the presentation of prominent preachers. It's utterly incredible what's happening right now. And what's happening in America with the woke revolution, what I call the omnigender revolution, that they, it's the term they use. And by omnigender revolution, they say we no longer want a culture built on the idea of two genders. We want all genders. We want a flexible culture built on a flexible number of genders. And there can be just as many genders as you want. And they can be whatever you define them to be. And there'll be no limit and no number. And that crowd has worked their way into some of the Bible translations of our day. If I took the time to go through it with you, it would be shocking and probably surprising. But our, our, so many people, so many quote-unquote evangelicals have said, we have to be able to identify with them in order to serve the Lord in our world today. Solomon didn't do that. He answered Sheba's question, Queen of Sheba's questions in such a fashion that when she was done she acknowledged the God of the Bible. That that is where the answers really were. And then secondly, he didn't try to compromise with her worldliness. If the traditions of Islam and the Jewish historian Josephus and the traditions of the Yemeni people were to be believed, The Queen of Sheba would have been a very, very worldly, ungodly person. And Solomon does not surrender to agreeing with that kind of ungodliness and putting things on her terms. Boy, I wish this is how the last chapter in the life of Solomon ends. It doesn't. You go on into chapter through chapter 10 and you find out the moment comes when Solomon, all the kingdoms around want to be identified with Solomon. They want to make peace with Solomon. They want a treaty with Solomon. And in the culture of their day, which was wicked and ungodly, royal families made peace through intermarriage. They made treaties through intermarriage. So you had all these kings of all these pagan kingdoms want to give their daughters to Solomon as a wife. (laughs) Certainly no romance in this. Being wife number 67. 
having, having to remember what country you have to be at peace at because that woman's in your harem. But women are brought to Solomon and, and more kings want to be uh, united with him. And in his wealth, as he begins to collect these pagan women as wives, he begins to collect other pagan women as concubines, as non-wives. And you reach a point where he becomes famous for having a royal harem of a thousand women. And the Bible says, those women turned his heart against the Lord. And they turned his heart into the kind of paganism that came from the cultures they were in. Solomon faced an incredible test when the queen of Sheba came to him and presented herself to him. And he passes that test in such a fashion that God gets the glory. Wonderful story. Not the last chapter of Solomon's life. Solomon is faced with the same test over and over and over again. And at some point, the Bible doesn't tell us when, but at some point he gave in. He gave in maybe to the beauty and sensuality of some ungodly woman. He gave in to the pressure of hearing the same thing so many times. He gave in to what was popular. He gave in to what was expected of him. Perhaps got lifted up in his pride. It's very, very interesting. God, I believe, dictated the very words of Scripture. I do not believe the human authors of scripture produced the words. I believe God dictated the very words. I believe that's why you read some of the things you read in the Bible. For example, Moses wrote that Moses was the meekest man on the planet. Is that what a meek person writes about themselves? No, God had Moses say that. God put those words there. Moses had to write that, didn't want to. I believe you see the same thing in the book of Proverbs. Three whole chapters in the book of Proverbs, five, six, and seven. God makes Solomon write about what kind of a fool a man is if he allows himself to be misled and misused by sensual women. And the whole time that Solomon's writing that, describing about what kind of a fool you are, Solomon is describing Solomon. I'll bet he didn't enjoy that. I'll bet he didn't like writing that. I'll bet he didn't like the idea people were going to read that. And in his day, when they read that, you know who they were going to think of first? Solomon. Solomon's that kind of fool. Solomon wasted the exalted privilege and opportunity that the God of heaven gave him. I doubt seriously that Solomon wanted to write that. I suspect Solomon liked the story of the Queen of Sheba better. He's the hero in the Queen of Sheba. And the failure. And his failure went so deep as he was influenced by ungodly women that not only did he begin to worship at the altars of ungodly pagan religions, 
He began to participate in their religion, which was based on child sacrifice, even to the point of offering some of his own children. Solomon became as degraded as a human being as you could possibly be, sinking to depths. It's just almost incomprehensible to imagine. I bet he liked the story of the Queen of Sheba better. He wrote about how, it, how foolish you are to give in to the foolishness of this world. Just maybe there are some lessons in that for us as individuals and as families and churches and ministries. I'm watching half with disgust and half with amusement at the creativity involved. Some of the most famous Bible colleges, Christian universities in America, trying desperately to justify uh, having homosexual students in their student body and making sure that they don't make them feel uncomfortable or say any word against their homosexuality because they're fearful of losing all the government benefits that they get. And and they're trying desperately to find ways to say it and do it that make it look not quite so bad. Maybe they'd have been better to learn something from Solomon. It's not our job to learn from the worldliness of this world and become relevant to this world. It is our job to stand for the truth of the word of God, no matter what anybody thinks of it or how anybody understands. I've watched them try to peel away from their stand on the scriptures and still be able to try and say and satisfy the alumni that, well, we believe the Bible is the word of God, but, and a couple times recently, including last week, I have been in other countries where preachers from other countries have said to me, what in the world is going on with the Bible colleges in the United States. If folks knew, they'd be in such shock. It's hard for me to tell it all because people would just assume I'm trying to promote the Bible college I'm part of. But if I was part of no Bible college, my heart would be sick at what I saw was going on. And in just one of a number of examples... Many of these colleges will advertise their King James colleges. We, we are here at Dayspring. It's what we use in the classroom. We teach our, our students about it, how to understand it, how to defend it, how to use it, etc. And And many of these well-known colleges spend large amounts of money advertising and bringing their King James. And then you get in the classroom. And they've had to hire teachers to satisfy secular accreditation standards and they bring in teachers that would teach you in the classroom that uh, you don't want the King James Bible you want one of these modernist translations folks are scratching their head they said he said this was a King James school and I was talking to the student I was in another country this summer and I was talking to a student at one of these schools that spends a lot of money advertising that they're King James and he was telling me the things he had been taught in the classroom there And I said, have you ever asked yourself how they justify that? And he said, yeah, I've asked them. They say, the school is King James, 
but the teachers are not. That's interesting to figure out. We're just going to have it both ways. And every way. Maybe there are some lessons for us in the life of Solomon. You are not going to be what you're supposed to be and what you need to be if you're trying to satisfy the world that you're like them. Every great movement of God that you record in the scripture. Every great movement of God that you read about in church history. I learned a lot of things about church history last week. Harry Ironside, who was from this area and pastored in Moody Church for 40 years, used to go to New Zealand and preach every year. That was just a part of his life, like going to the Philippines every year is part of my life. He actually died during one of those trips and is buried in New Zealand, there in Auckland. And I learned some interesting church history. Boy, there's some things to be learned from church history. But every great movement of God I find in the Bible, every great movement of God I find in studying church history comes from taking a truth that has been neglected and going back to it. It never comes from finding a way to satisfy the world that you're not really that bad or you're not really that extreme or that you're going to be culturally in tune with the world. Every great move of God. So again, I thank the Lord for this ministry. I thank the Lord for this Bible college. I thank the Lord for the grace conference and things that we're about. Going back to the basic. The gospel. The authority of the word of God. Building on that. Doing it the most effective way. Being as creative as we can to reach people. And touch the lives of people but never ever bending from the truth in order to be popular or successful. There's some lessons from Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Oh man, I'm so grateful for this lesson. Jesus Christ died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin. I taught an entire class on that subject, the just shall live by faith, 20 hours. We looked at all the different terms from reconciliation to sanctification to justification to ransom, and they all teach the same thing. That Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. A few weeks ago, I got to stand in front of 5,000 people and tell them that. And tell them that if there's somebody here that has never trusted Christ as their Savior, this very morning, before you would ever leave this auditorium, you could trust Christ as your Savior. And it turned out in a crowd that size... There were about 50 people that responded to that message. It's tremendous. A tremendous thing to watch. I would tell you here, I understand it's a different grouping of people, Wednesday night church. But if there's somebody here that's never put your faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross of Calvary, God's precious gift of salvation. We don't need to have it re-explained or redefined or made it culturally relevant. What the Bible teaches us about the death of Jesus Christ in providing salvation for every one of us, that is for you. If you're here tonight without ever having trusted Christ as your savior, this ought to be the very evening that you would put your faith and trust in what Christ did for you. God bless y'all.